Hey, my name's Jamie Poisson, and I'm the host of Frontburner. It's the CBC's daily news podcast. And every day we're discussing the big events and fault lines shaping Canada and the world. Politics, economics, social movements, you name it. Sometimes we even talk about really fun stuff like the enduring relevance of Lord of the Rings. You can hear Frontburner on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. 25 years ago this week, the Good Friday Agreement was signed in Northern Ireland, marking the end of a brutal three-decades-long conflict known as the Troubles. On one side were the mostly Protestant Unionists, who wanted to keep Northern Ireland within the UK. And on the other, mostly Catholic Nationalists, who wanted the region to rejoin the Republic and create a united, independent Ireland. After the UK government imposed direct rule to restore order, the IRA, the major Republican paramilitary force, began a war of attrition in an attempt to force Britain's withdrawal. Violence perpetrated by security forces and paramilitary groups led to the deaths of over three and a half thousand people. For anyone who grew up in Northern Ireland during the Troubles between 1968 and 1998, violence and political unrest permeated every aspect of life. I've had very close friends who've been killed as a part of the conflict, whether it be innocently or because they're in a paramilitary organization as it was then. So This is Paul Johnston. He grew up in a Protestant unionist community and he still lives in Belfast. I don't think there's there's many in the country that maybe have been untouched or haven't knew somebody who has um, been affected in some way, whether it be emotionally and mentally or actually through the loss of somebody. The Good Friday Agreement was celebrated as an incredible achievement in peacemaking. The deal struck saw the establishment of a power-sharing Northern Ireland Assembly, cross-border cooperation with the Republic, and committed all parties to the decommissioning of weapons. Controversially, it also led to the release of many paramilitary prisoners. Ireland dropped its claim to the Northern Territories based on the reality that, at the time, a majority of people in Northern Ireland wanted to remain in the UK. And a whole generation's grown up having never seen the kind of political violence that someone like Paul witnessed. My daughter, my eldest daughter, was born in 1989, so she was a year old. And her life has been totally transformed by the peace deal. So, you know, she's a young person who grew up in a peaceful society. But while the bombings and shootings have stopped, many people like Paul say the work of the Good Friday Agreement, of the peace process, is not done. That society is still very much divided along the same lines as it was during the Troubles. And that it's especially important now that Catholics outnumber Protestants in Northern Ireland and Brexit, which most people in the region voted against, has renewed a conversation about reunification. (laughs) 
This week, we're going to look at why 25 years since the Good Friday Agreement, society in Northern Ireland is still so segregated, how these divisions play out in the region's politics, and whether reunification is likely anytime soon. I'm Tamara Kendacker, and this is Nothing is Foreign. Paul is a project manager at the Monkstown Boxing Club, which also runs a youth program called In Your Corner. It focuses on keeping young people out of local paramilitary groups. Paul, I wanted to start with kind of a then and now comparison. So the Good Friday Agreement was supposed to usher in this new era of reconciliation. And I wonder, how would you describe the relationship between unionist, mostly Protestant communities and nationalist, mostly Catholic communities 25 years later? There still is very much a political divide. Our education system, 80% of our young people are educated in a segregated sect based on religion. So Protestants go to their own schools, Catholics go to their own schools. And one of the main sort of ideals coming out of the Good Friday Agreement was to have integrated education where young people from different backgrounds would, would come together and be educated jointly. That hasn't been achieved as yet. So young people are still staying within their own communities. Um, they're not getting the opportunities to meet and make friends with their peers from a different background. I've also read about these fortified eight-foot-high peace walls that are still up all around Belfast, around a hundred of them, I think, right, that divide Protestant communities from Catholic communities. One of the sad points, unfortunately, is that there's more peace walls now than there was when the Good Friday Agreement was signed. And I think that's a confidence thing with communities until such times as young people feel comfortable and confident of moving between different communities, there's always going to be that that sense of fear. Katie Hayward has spent a lot of time studying the divisions between these two communities. She teaches political sociology at Queen's University Belfast and is an expert on Northern Ireland. I asked her why there are more peace walls now than there were when the agreement was signed. Particularly in Belfast, but then in some other places as well, including Derry City, you have had segregation that is reinforced with um, actual physical barriers. Um, Now, some of them have begun to be taken down, but that involves a lot of care and time and negotiation with people who hold power at that local level. Often those people are connected to paramilitary organisations. Now, the reason why those walls went up is because they served a purpose. So you have Catholic Protestant communities living side by side, but at times of political tension in particular, that can give rise to riotous behaviour, antisocial behaviour, or indeed violence. And so those walls um, give those local communities a sense of security. Where we see them come down, it's as a process of reassurance. Sometimes there's um, demographic change in the area. But oftentimes it's the people who live closest to them who don't want them to come down um, because they actually still, unfortunately, serve a purpose today. Why have the two sides remained so segregated? 
there's two dynamics here, okay? So the one is on the political scene. Unionism and nationalism remain the most important political identities. So they're constantly reinforced by the way that the political system works because the Good Friday Agreement was really premised on the idea that you have the peaceful expression of those two identities. Then in social terms, there hasn't been huge transformation or incentivization for reconciliation in the sense of coming closer together and sharing identities. Um, very much, you know, Protestant, Catholic differences continue to persist and haven't been um, hugely transformed even after 25 years. What we don't have is a sense of a real discussion about Northern Ireland in terms of its its history and its future. In a funny way, there's a sort of a not a dealing with that in the way that you might expect other societies to to handle it. And that's partly because of conflicting narratives and understandings about what the conflict was about and how it was how it was brought to an end. And therefore there's almost this there's a sort of like a, an ignorance um about the conflict and about why Northern Ireland is the way it is that is sort of reflected now in a form of um, the way I would put it is be a sort of a form of silence that younger people have. There have been some incidents of political violence over the years from nationalist dissident groups. Like a few months ago, there was a high profile shooting of a police officer, which led to the UK raising the terror threat level in Northern Ireland. This is Detective Chief Inspector John Caldwell, a senior and well-respected murder detective. After coaching an under-15 football team at this sports complex, he was putting footballs into his car when he was attacked and shot multiple times by two gunmen in front of his young son. These incidents always get a lot of attention in the media when they happen, obviously, but how frequent are they? So we have seen the continued activity of paramilitary organisations um, ever since the Good Friday Belfast Agreement. I mean, we mustn't forget that one of the biggest atrocities of the conflict happened after the Good Friday Belfast Agreement was signed in August 1998 with the Omer bombing, which killed 29 people. And so the dissident Republican organisations who reject the Good Friday Belfast Agreement um have, I, I think it's not surprising that they want to make their mark 25 years on and say they continue to exist. So long as you continue to oppress us, you will meet with the inescapable consequences. Historically, oppression breeds resistance, so I quote Mara Drum. It isn't enough to shout up the IRA. The important thing is to join the IRA! They have political expression as well, um, and they have shows of strength around Easter uh, Monday as well. They sort of make their presence felt then. Also on the loyalist side, we've seen paramilitary organisations to con continue to exist. Um, and for the vast amount of time, basically what they have done is exercise power within their communities. So the reason we don't talk about political violence in the sense of uh, a return to the troubles is because that violence is generally not targeted at people in the other community. It's either against security forces, which we have seen fairly regularly, or it's against their competitive paramilitary groups, if you like, or brigades of groups. In some cases, they're continuing to recruit and the reason they thrive is because they're connected to organised crime. 
um, and they engage in those same activities as other forms of um, organized crime gangs do elsewhere in the world, you know, extortion, intimidation, smuggling, etc., etc. Paul Johnston has spent a lot of his life trying to prevent young people from joining these groups. And he says a lot of their struggles are rooted in intergenerational trauma. Young people in, in a number of ways that the trauma that was witnessed by parents is now being passed on to their children because they didn't have the support around their mental health and well-being. And that, that generational trauma is now following down into the next generation. So many of the issues we find in terms of young people making bad choices, whether it be drug or alcohol use, is around trauma. Why do you think the youth you work with from unionist Protestant communities might be vulnerable to joining paramilitary groups? It goes back to education. Leaving school with no qualifications really does have a negative impact on the choices that they can make as they try to find work. Uh, which which now we have a skills-based economy and it's really important that, that our schools are producing students with, you know, those, those career-ready and job-ready uh, qualifications. If you leave school and you don't have those, the career options are, are quite limited. Um, you either end up on a, on a cycle of being on benefits for the rest of your life and struggling to find work, or if you're really vulnerable, and you maybe have started using um, some drugs or sampling, whatever it might be, you find yourself being recruited into these criminal gangs. I, I tend not to use the word paramilitaries now because there's, there's absolutely no need for paramilitaries. It's a, it's a flag of convenience, essentially, for, for many of these loyalist gangs who are criminals but operating a massive drug empire. There is this idea that I wanted to put to you. I, I wonder what you think. I've heard that in Protestant unionist communities, education hasn't been as valued as it has been in Catholic nationalist communities because back in the day, Protestant communities were kind of in charge of a lot of the industries and there was a bit of a power imbalance. And so in Catholic families, education was really emphasized and parents would tell their kids, you have to do well in school because that's kind of how you have to get ahead. Does that ring true to you? Is that is that true? Uh, very much so. You probably hit the nail on the head there. Um, there, there, there wasn't an inclusive economic um, or employment opportunity. Let's say back in the seventies and eighties, industry here and manufacturing was was one of the main employers. Uh, however, that that trend has changed. It's moving to a more high skills economy and. You know, qualifications is really important to to get a, a I suppose a, a really good career. The the legacy that we talked about earlier of the conflict in terms of uh, generational is not just around trauma, but it's also around education. So yes, my both both my parents valued education. They they ensured that I left school with with a range of good qualifications. However, many within some of the communities here didn't value education. They thought that they would just get a job the way their parents or their grandparents did. So there is that that massive gap in terms of Protestant young males going on to higher education and graduating with a degree. 
Are the motivations for young people from nationalist communities a bit different for joining paramilitary groups? I, I think the, in terms of the, the the Catholic and the sort of breakaway groups that that have been established in the last maybe five years, there, there's a there's a different recruitment policy. Let's say that they still believe that um, Ireland should be a 32 county state, and again, many of these young males are the most vulnerable in our society. They they maybe haven't had the best upbringing, they maybe haven't had the best educational experience. So they are very influenced by some of these community leaders, so-called paramilitaries, that, that attract them into, come and join our gang, here's what we're going to do, you're going to have a, you know, you're going to get a nice car, you're going to have the latest gear, and they almost romanticise the fact of joining these paramilitaries. However, it couldn't be further from the truth. There's no way in this earth that anybody is going to succumb to having a, a resurgence of a conflict here in Northern Ireland. It just won't happen. There's too much at risk. There's too many young people who are uh, have been born post-Good Friday Agreement. And, and we're, we're a forward-thinking society. We, we have no time for going back to those dark days of the Troubles. Hey friends, I'm Alameen Abdul Mahmoud. I'm the host of the new podcast, Commotion. If you don't know about us yet, well, we are your daily deep dive into the biggest stories coming out of the world of pop culture, art, and entertainment. And luckily, I'm not going to be doing it alone, okay? I'll be joined by some brilliant culture writers and thoughtful super fans. We're going to have hilarious hot takes. We're going to have vibrant debates. Consider this your invitation to join the group chat. Get in here and join us. Commotion, available weekdays on CBC Listen. So just to recap what we've heard from Paul and Katie so far, when it comes to housing and education, society in Northern Ireland is still pretty segregated along religious and political lines. There's also these paramilitary groups, many of which operate like criminal gangs. And they're able to recruit people for political reasons or economic reasons. I wanted to go back to Katie and spend some time talking about what the agreement has meant for politics in the region. She told me that because the Good Friday Agreement was about where the Irish border would be and whether Northern Ireland would be part of the UK, that became a fundamental political question for people in the region. And it continues to be today. So you had this sort of a reinforcing um, of unionist and nationalist identities who are both seen as having equal legitimacy. And fundamentally, of course, one thing that was most remarkable, perhaps, about the Good Friday Belfast Agreement was that it provides for a referendum on Irish unification if it looks likely that a, there'd be a majority in Northern Ireland who would wish Irish unity to happen. So as a result of that, you see unionists keen to make sure that Northern, the status quo persists. So they want to remain the majority in Northern Ireland. And then you have nationalists incentivized to become the majority in Northern Ireland. Um, and in that way, you can see why it is that we've had a growth of hardline unionism and nationalism on the political level. Um, because ultimately, at the end of the day, that constitutional question remains a live one things could change. And therefore, for unionists, 
there's a rationale to voting hardline unionists and nationalist rationale to voting hardline nationalists. Right. And now we have Sinn Féin, which used to be seen as the mouthpiece for the Irish Republican Army, now the biggest party in Northern Ireland. Held sway there. No one really for a very long time could have possibly envisaged a day when an Irish nationalist party that doesn't even recognise Northern Ireland's existence would be uh, in the position to nominate a first minister. That does too. What do you make of that? At the time of the Good Friday Agreement, unlike all the other parties, obviously with the exception of the Democratic Unionist Party, which had um, rejected the agreement, Sinn Féin said they were going to hold their counsel on it. They weren't going to make a pronouncement as to whether they supported it or not. Um, And it's only over time um, that they have become now champions of the Good Friday Agreement, even though the political leadership in Sinn Féin still do not outrightly condemn the violence of the Troubles and IRA atrocities in the Troubles, they do condemn dissident Republican violence today in a very explicit way. Interestingly, there's a sort of a, because of that silence that we were talking about before about history and the lack of a common agreed narrative about the conflict, actually what you have um, is a misunderstanding or misrepresentation of what the, what the conflict was actually about. So a recent survey in the Republic of Ireland showed that most younger people thought that the com- that in the conflict it was the British army that killed most people rather than the IRA. There's a sort of, uh, based partly on ignorance, partly because we haven't held up our responsibility of teaching the next generation about the conflict, there's this, there's this misunderstanding of the conflict coming forward. People are concerned about that because Sinn Féin is by far the most popular party at the moment in the South and there is likelihood that they will be in government after the next election in the Republic of Ireland, as well as being now the largest party in Northern Ireland. You can perfectly understand then why unionists are very worried about what this might mean for Northern Ireland, um, and particularly in the South, for what that might mean for the Irish government's approach to Northern Ireland and, and its future. I've mentioned the idea of unification and been seeing a lot of talk about that recently, especially since Catholics now outnumber Protestants in Northern Ireland. I've seen politicians talking about it. Seems like a lot of books are being written about it. How seriously do you think people should be taking this? Could we actually see a referendum on this issue, do you think? We know it's possible for there to be a referendum and we know if it looks likely that there is a majority in Northern Ireland who would vote in favour of it that the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland either the British government minister responsible for this place should call a referendum he'd be obliged to do so the next question is well on what basis would he make that decision if it was based on public opinion polling we don't see yet many indications that there is a majority who support Irish unity Um, Although when we're looking at those who support Northern Ireland's place in the UK, it is, you know, it's between about 45 and 50 percent or maybe a little less than 50 percent. So it's not not overwhelmingly strong if it's based on numbers in the assembly, if it's based on the largest party. We see Sinn Féin as the largest party now. If it's based on the largest designation, so-called, we still see that unionists are the majority of MLAs. Or if it's based on census results, I would caution on that because we shouldn't assume that all Catholics would vote for Irish unification because we know that that's not the case. 
what is really interesting in work that we do in social attitude survey in Northern Ireland, Northern Ireland Life and Time survey is that we have seen a steady rise in expectation of Irish unity post-Brexit. So when the UK left the EU or decided to do that, people expect Irish unity to happen now. I know a small majority of people in Northern Ireland voted to stay in the EU in, in 2016. So what kind of impact do you think Brexit has had on this conversation? Brexit has no doubt changed the whole discussion and then expectation of what Northern Ireland's future might be like. So if the UK and Ireland are moving closer together, that's really easy then for Northern Ireland that is integrated both with Ireland and with Britain. And that's what Northern Ireland needs. Obviously, Brexit, the UK leaving the European Union, puts strain on, on that relationship and raises borders and differences between North and South on the island of Ireland, as well as raising a sense of resistance and, and resentment in Northern Ireland vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the UK, because, as you say, it voted to remain by 56%. So it's an extremely challenging environment. And moving forward together, you've had them on opposite sides of a negotiating table. And for much of that period of Brexit negotiation, they were disagreeing about what should happen at the Irish border. Um, so, of course, inevitably, that brought pressure within Northern Ireland. Um, and we're still seeing the fallout of that today. Yeah. And then and then meanwhile, in Northern Ireland, the assembly hasn't sat for over a year because the main unionist party has been protesting the new trade rules. Right. So what have been the consequences of government being sort of paralyzed like that for so long? Yes. Yeah, so four out of the last six years, we haven't had fully functioning assembly and executive so in 2017, Sinn Féin um, stepped out of the power-sharing arrangements. That was during the process of the Brexit negotiations, and certainly that background context made it more difficult for Sinn Féin to come back into power-sharing. And yes, the Democratic Unionist Party hasn't allowed the Assembly to function since the May elections last year. The impact of that, it's had serious consequences in terms of public service delivery. And we haven't had ministers in place to make decisions um, about implementing strategies, for example, or about funding. And ironically, at the moment, um, we have big decisions to be made about budget cuts. And in the place of ministers, we have civil servants being asked to make those difficult decisions and they don't feel able to do so. These institutions obviously play a practical part, but they also have a symbolic role as well. And if you don't have functioning democratic institutions... Um, there is a vacuum. And that vacuum is particularly significant in Northern Ireland where um, people are being asked to trust democratic and peaceful means of resolving differences rather than other means, i.e. violence. And so I would be concerned that this vacuum, if this vacuum continues to persist, because essentially what it's saying is these you know, democratic means don't work or they can't work in Northern Ireland. My hope would be that we could establish those power-sharing arrangements in such a way that young people in particular think that their views are represented in a way that reflects the new diversity that exists in Northern Ireland, i.e. for identities that aren't unionist or nationalist, in order for those institutions to be seen as being more able to meet the priorities of the, of the wider population and younger generation and less prone to being vetoed or boycotted 
or distorted by hardline unionists or nationalists. But that requires courage and a vision that is all too rarely seen here. All right, that's all for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Our producer is Joyta Shangupta and our sound designer is Yvette Sin. Our senior producer is Elaine Chow. The executive producer of Nothing is Foreign is Nick McCabe-Locos. Nothing is Foreign is a co-production of CBC News and CBC Podcasts. Our theme music is by Joseph Shabison. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at CBC Podcasts. I'm Tamara Kandacker. Thank you so much for listening, and I will talk to you next week. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.